John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1325.IS2314, certificate number 32056, Trafalgar versus Carmania. Have, uh, have you been on a cruise? A cruise ship? No. I know you've cruised to the Strip in your hometown. You and I, yeah. I've been to some very cruisy restrooms. Uh, you and I are going to go on a cruise together. Wide stance Jennings, they call it. <laughs> we are. We're only a couple of weeks out from uh, from your debut cruise and my, what will probably be, 12th cruise. Were you on the inaugural one? I was. I was on the, uh, so... So we're talking about the Jonathan Colton cruise. I was part of the initial the initial cast and was on every subsequent one. Uh, I missed one a couple of years ago. Oh, that's got to hurt. This will be, I think, the 10th Jonathan Colton cruise. But I've also, I was also the music director of uh, the, of the two, Titanic. I was the. You, you I, kept I did, playing. I did. Good job. <laughs> I kept playing as the Titanic of indie rock sank beneath <laughs> the waves. Uh, no, I was the music director of two Maximum Fun cruises. I forgot that they did that as a cruise. Yeah. So I've been on. I've been on a lot more cruises than I thought I would. There is more nerd podcast cruise culture than I would have expected, and and more all the time. I think there's probably a serial cruise now, and maybe a. Maybe a, a Mark Marin crew. I don't. What think percentage of the Maron world's cruise, geeks are in international waters at all times now? Right. At some point, you're going to get a critical mass, and they can just found a nation state. Well, the thing is that you need to keep some of your nerds at sea in case of an apocalypse. That's what the Scientologists do. Yeah. How they're, are you? How they're are not you, wrong. <laughs> how are you going to reestablish nerd culture if you don't have a, a seed population? Right. We need a seed arc of people who have never actually spilled their seed. Are you? Mm, are you? Ooh. Boy, that took me like two seconds to get the full depth of your crime. It's a, it's a rare uh, audio triple take. <laughs> eh, ooh, eh, ooh. I uh, I didn't expect that I would be on a cruise, but you know, thinking of you and your family, you you uh, 
you could have cruised independent of this opportunity. I don't, e- I don't even know. You can use cruise as a verb like that. Yes. We're, we're going to cruise this summer. Yes. That seems weird. I'm sorry, but the, the whole cruise culture has its own language. This is what's keeping me out. All, this, all these manners. Uh, Teach me, John. Walk me through this. I'm, gonna, I'm going to. I'm going to walk you aboard the uh, <laughs> the Amsterdam or whatever, the, the Rotterdam, and I'm going to walk you through. I'm going to take you to the Butter Lion. I'm going to take you boat. to the... Soon we'll be Seventh making another run. Yeah, we've never done an Alaska cruise as a family, which you'd think we would have here yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. I'm sure maybe it'll happen at some point. I'm resistant to the idea. Didn't you go to Antarctica? Didn't you do yeah. some kind of boat Does thing? that count as a cruise? Well, I don't know. It's, I've never been. It's a Russian icebreaker right. boat. There's that, no shuffleboard. That doesn't sound very cruisy. I mean, there's a lounge and there's a dining room aft, but it's it's kind of small sounds more like a bus there's (laughs) it's a greyhound bus that's basically crossing the drake passage so you're throwing up a lot so basically a regular greyhound bus well i'm excited for you you know we're we're going to be doing omnibus live in front of a a cruising audience we'll be we'll be doing this show live at sea what is it like to do it in front of a a booze soaked audience instead of just here in your basement uh here in the bunker i mean yeah i know that my audience here in this bunker could not be less booze soaked (laughs) diet dr pepper soaked (laughs) audience um the uh you know the thing about nerds in general is that they're extremely supportive uh they are they're part of the um just let people like what they like culture so they're going to love us even if they don't they're gonna love us they will laugh at the unfunny jokes because that's what that's what it uh, being a good audience means to them. They're nice. courteous, so it'll be like you, you, you <laughs> send it immediately to heaven. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm a little apprehensive because anytime you see cruises, anytime a cruise makes the news, uh, it's mm. it's not because of something good. It's because of uh, what's that uh, virus bacteria that kills everything <laughs> Talking in about hospitals? The poop cruise? E-, e. coli or no? Uh, uh, <laughs> what's the hospital on Mer- yeah, MRSA? Mer- Mer- MRSA. Yeah, MRSA or whatever it is. Uh, or, um, you know, a drunk captain just turns the thing over. Or, I mean, you never hear about the thousands of crews that go off without a hitch and people just eat mediocre food and get a sunburn. I think there should be more coverage of that. Yeah, well, that's the reason that you only hear about, um, that you only hear about the Total disaster. Well, plus the and the ecological impact, the ongoing disaster that cruise ships represent, and 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 the one kind of is related to the other. You don't you only hear about the disasters because cruising is so commonplace now. Mm-hmm. There are so many cruise ships plying the world's oceans that it's just like you only hear about airplane disasters because it's no longer novel that an airplane full of people you know do anything. Um, it's a commute. It's a commute. They're everywhere. And uh, if you're from the Midwest and you've never seen the scale, you know, if you're some, from some landlocked place and you've never seen the scale of one of these ships, honestly, if you're from the Midwest, you probably cruise every year. Right. Uh, That's exactly right. But if you've never been somewhere and you've seen, been able to see a cruise ship in comparison to reference objects on land, it is shocking. I, I was on a, I was looking down a little narrow canal in Venice once. And suddenly the end of the canal is just filled yeah. with a cruise ship in the lagoon and it just keeps going. It's like the yeah. first shot of Star Wars. Yeah. Like the cruise ship just keeps coming. It's well, the size and, of a city. And there is a, uh, there is a sort of one-upsmanship uh, among cruise lines. They're constantly launching new ships. The, the largest ship at the moment is the Symphony of the Seas, which is a Royal Caribbean ship. It has a gross tonnage of 228,000 tons. 
It's 360 feet long, and it um, it can carry 6,600 people. Oh my gosh! Which is absolutely the size of a small town, right? I mean, a small town, but a town. We should found a bigger cruise ship and just call it the One Upsman ship. <laughs> oh! It'll be impossible to beat. This is the kind of joke that is going to kill on cruise ships. Ha <laughs> ha! I understood a pun. Ha ha ha! Says the Joko Cruise audience. And when I say sixty six hundred people, that's passengers. And generally on a yeah, cruise ship, yeah, what's the crew complement? You, it's it's very, you have almost as many crew. Really? Uh, because they're. I mean, you have just the waiters alone. There are 6,600 people, 6,600 waiters. There are at least a thousand waiters. I'd love to get issued a waiter right when I go up the gangplank. This is Rudy. He will be with you for your entire trip. No, wait, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wrong here. This says there are only 2,200, uh, crew. This new ship has more robots. Yeah. There's 4,400 robot waiters as well. What it probably means is that you spend a lot of time going, hello, you know, good, like chinking the the ice in your drink, like chinka, chinka, chinka. Hello. I thought it was all buffets. There are a lot of buffets. There's a lot of gravy on cruise ships, which is which is my main attraction. <laughs> See, to some people that would be a uh, a deal breaker that there's so much gravy, right? But not to, not for you. No, no, no. In fact, in fact, I will take the food of any nation and put gravy on it, and it's a it's the it's a unifier, right? Gravy brings the foods of all nations together and creates one sort of trash meal. So if you put like some tacos, right. if, you, if you've got some, a buffet plate, yeah, and, and you've, you've got, got a gyro and some chop suey, right, a little bit of uh, gumbo, you've got some curry, and then you just put that delicious brown gravy right over everything. This is why you like mm-hmm. Central and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. They've already got the gravy. They do. You, you don't have to do a thing. But we've talked about cruise ships on this show before. We've talked about. Remind the, me when we've talked about the SS United States. Uh, yes. The, the ocean liner that's now rusting somewhere. That's right, rusting in the in Philadelphia Harbor. Sad. And we talked about all the all the uh, the different trophies and championships that cruise ships used to used to trade back and forth as they when, crossed the when Atlantic. When speed was an issue, right? right. Because that was the, my kids were surprised the other day when I told them that you know well into the middle of the twentieth century, most people would go to if you were going to Europe, if you were a middle upper class American, you would not fly. No, because that was. Well, first of all, it involved many stops up until, I don't know, when's the first nonstop commercial transatlantic flight? Surprisingly late in the 20th century. Right, surprising. You would just assume that everybody would spend a week on a boat. My parents took a Hawaiian cruise, which is a thing that that hardly exists. I mean, I don't know if you could take a boat from San Francisco to Hawaii. You could, now. but you'd have to take it at gunpoint. Ooh. I'm the captain now. Point. I mean, any boat's, <laughs> any, any boat's a cruise ship if you've got a big enough gun. Most Hawaiian cruises leave from Hawaiian ports now and tool around Hawaii and then, then bring you back. I have seen them. Yeah. But, there. Uh, but, but from, yeah, from California? No, right? No, no. Because what, what the, the whole premise of a cruise now is that you make multiple stops. Mm-hmm. And even though it's kind of a flawed premise because all of the places that are set up to receive a large cruise ship have also uh, very intentionally evacuated any local color at, from the cruise area probably at the request of the local color yeah they don't right. want to be there well no and the places where the where the local color haven't managed to evacuate themselves boy they are resentful when a cruise ship pulls into town and because the money doesn't just doesn't disseminate to everyone it's pretty collected i'm not even an indigenous person much yeah, and well. I and I get angry when I'm in downtown Seattle and suddenly uh, 
you know, I can't cross first because people are trying to drive down into Pike Place Market. Right. Because there's 3,000 cruises in town. Imagine if you lived in a town of 3,500 <laughs> right. people and 6,500 people arrived. Do I sell um, uh, cute little origamis made of soda cans? Because in that case, maybe I'm delighted. Well, no, because the cruise companies restrict who can. They don't want you as a cruiser to leave the protected enclave that they create on shore. So they have all well, kinds of. You might get murdered might, by weed. Well, you might meet anybody else, right? And, and so you're not encouraged to go into the town. You're not encouraged to shop locally. You're encouraged to shop from kiosks that have paid a fee to set up within the gate. And then you can go out with an authorized tour that takes you some to a nice beach yeah. somewhere. I just had the first experience in my life of trying to price some of these excursions. Yeah. And it's clear that they can charge what they do because there is no competition. Sure, what they, are you going to do? They don't want you to know about uh, Pablo's bike tour of Santo Domingo. Many, they want you to go on theirs that's $249 ahead. Many, many times I have left the cruise and gone into the town and walked around and met uh, people who have said, why don't you go back to the cruise? <laughs> you're, you're, you're not supposed to you're be You're sort here. of walking around our neighborhood now and <laughs> that's, you don't, you don't belong. Are you supposed to have a little card or something that, uh, that gives you non-cruise rights? Like how do you show them that you're a kind of authentic Soul. Well, the same way I show everyone that I'm a man of the world. I say, hello, hail fellow, well met. <laughs> you clap someone on the back heartily and that does it? <laughs> I waved at a guy last year. I was, I forget where, I was in St. John or something. I, I was walking along and I looked looked down a an alley and there was someone, I don't know, monkeying around halfway up the alley and he looked at me and I looked at him and I waved and he just gave me double birds. Just like, <laughs> I was like... And, and we both had a laugh at it. I was like, yeah, I get it. I, no, you're not right. You, you nailed me. And he's like, I mean, we were you know, 100 feet apart. So. My Spanish is not bad. Oh, well, will, 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 that, will that do me any good? In some ports. In some ports. You know, it depends, I mean, on, Jamaica. depends on who the colonize, colonizers were. Right. But right? what I'm saying is, does it, will that give me any, uh, hey, go back to the ship, Whitey, credit? No, no, no. No, okay. I'm, no one's going to look at you and imagine that you are authentic anywhere outside of the Jello belt. <laughs> outside of a very small belt. <laughs> yeah. Most of which is in Idaho. I mean, yeah, right. In Nebraska, you'll get a handshake, right? But even if you go as far as South Dakota, people are going to recognize you as someone from the South. <laughs> By which I mean from Nebraska. The, from the South. <laughs> it's true. I can't even go to Canada anymore. Well, uh, part of the excitement of cruising is that it has associations with a um, with a more glamorous time. And this was part of even in despite the, everything of our cruising culture today, <laughs> trying to kill off those associations, they do persist. Even in the time of the, uh, the SS United States, it was, um, I mean, the, the, that ship fell into disrepair because the jet, the jet airplane supplanted it. Even then it was an attempt to kind of recapture the golden age. But I think a lot of people begin their first cruise or imagine that there's some component to cruising that still has um, the, the sound of tinkling champagne glasses and and uh, tuxedos. Glamour. Glamour. You told me I was going to have to get a tux for this I thing. I did. And, that's and part, I'm unhappy about and it. Partly I'm gaslighting you because cruising now has become um, largely the purview of people that never take off their sweatpants. Um, it's just as things become more accessible, as things are are more, um, as as the middle class sort of, I, I feel like in America now the middle class is economically suppressed, 
Um, but culturally ascendant, everything, even the rich now aspire to look like they shop at Target. Yeah, right. Work at a mall. So there are an awful lot of people that show up to formal night in clothes that you would use if you were cleaning a tennis court. Well, when they asked me where my stateroom, when they gave me the questions to show where my stateroom would be, it was just one question. It was, do you take your shoes off on airplanes? And I clicked yes, of course. And I got, I got condemned <laughs> right, to, you're down, to, to deck five or deck whatever. Five. Uh, but there still is, there still is a little bit of kind of lip service paid to the idea that this, that these are, that these are special nights, you know, there, there's a, there, there's well, just all a, commercials. The commercial is yeah. just like, make this look like a, a magical fairyland. Maybe I'm just thinking of Disney cruises, <laughs> but it's, you know, because it's, you're surrounded by water. It's, it's romantic. Yeah. And it, and it is, it's a romantic thing, but, but it hearkens to a time when, uh, when cruising was, was truly elegant. And it, it's not that cruises were only accessible to, uh, to the very rich, because if you think about the sinking of the Titanic, um, there were at least sure. a thousand poor people locked behind a There's gate. There's a reason why the Titanic <laughs> music is an Irish Celtic flute trilling, because that's the sound of a you know the bubbles going up from an underwater Irish person. <laughs> but our story today involves another side of cruising, <laughs> um, and that is that cruise ships. Being um, being the the large vessels that they are, uh, cruise ships often are employed in other capacities um, in time of war because cruise cruise ships and cruise liners, uh, as we saw in the story about the SS United States, uh, they they often are sort of ambassadors, representatives of their nations. The Lusitania or the um, the uh, Titanic, even I mean, they're they are uh, not sort a very of, good ambassador. The Titanic. The Titanic was a great ambassador. That's like a Trump era ambassador first. that lasts you know one week and then says something awful on social media. It uh, it's a it's a big boat that um, that if it, it, even now in uh, in the event of war when. When a when a navy or a, a military force needs to be transported from one place to another, those ships get requisitioned. They get um, they get grabbed by the government and cruise. Can the ships. government just is there a law for that? The government can just commandeer your cruise ship. Well, they can, and and in a and in a lot of cases, cruise ships are built with this in mind. Um, like the Queen Mary was built with the idea that she could be converted into a troop ship. So they, they, they bake it into the design that at some point in the life of this boat, it may be that we take the, the, the sh- chandeliers the shrimp, out. The shrimp buffet flips over. <laughs> right. And be, there's like a, there's spam a radar screen. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and uh, crowd, chipped beef on toast. So it's, it's something that's, that's always happened from the beginning of pleasure cruising. Uh, and, and, Part of that is that in the event of war, cruising sort of falls by the wayside. Right. Right. You don't. Here's what you don't want to do if there's U-boats around. <laughs> and I assume it's profitable for the cruise line owner, right? Somebody gets a fat check from a, from defense budgets, from War Department budgets. I mean, I think that probably um, 
probably that's true. And but also, I think probably every cruise company would rather there not be a war. Let's not say that cruise not, cruise companies are profiteers. I'm not saying they're banging the drums right now. Like I'm not saying that the uh, whoever owns the SS Persian Gulf is very excited to see that retrofitted with uh, with anti aircraft guns. But you know, it's, I, I'm just saying they're not losing out on all their income, right? They well, yeah. I mean, I guess they. Probably Why am I the, worried about if, Monsieur Cunard? If the ship if the ship sinks, they probably get an insurance settlement. Although yeah. I don't know how you insure your boat against torpedoes. That seems like one of those line items that your ship gets sunk and you go to claim your insurance, and they're like, <sighs> reading your policy. Yeah, I never checked that box. We didn't see torpedo. I, I thought it would include torpedo. Um, but it is. It's a fairly. Um, it's a sort. I mean, even during the Falklands War. Uh, a lot of the uh, there were cruise ships were requisitioned, but it was very true by during, the British or the Argentines by the British. Oh, okay. um, it was very true during wartime um, when ships did the lion's share of of uh, troop transport and, and heavy lifting. Right? I mean, I don't I don't think during the Iraq War the U.S. required any cruise ships because they just I mean we're we're now able to. Transport Everybody trips flies over airplanes, yeah. yeah. But during during World War One and World War Two, a lot of merchant ships and cruise ships were pressed into service. And our uh, our story takes place at the very beginning of World War One, in the years immediately prior to World War One. This was the the heyday of the big pleasure liner, and um, the major nations were all building big liners as a as the sort of jewel in their crown and evidence that they were among the elite of nations. It's kind of like you, you only certain countries are industrialized enough that they can produce a viable automobile, right? You, you, it's a sort of a sign that you have joined the ranks of the truly successful industrial powers. Like there still really aren't mass produced Russian cars flooding the streets of major nations right and it's a it's a strange it's a strange sort of industrial benchmark um that korea can become a major automaker and russia just never has managed to yeah at the time think of it there's there's that's the forefront of technology a big gleaming ocean liner like that that's that's as far as we've gotten i guess maybe the modern analog would be a space program yeah, where right. s- suddenly a, a China or a European Space Agency or an India is racing to catch up. Yeah, can you can you put something into outer space? It's a that's quite a back, challenge. Back then, instead instead of saying we can put a man on the moon, we would say we can put two thousand rich people in the middle of the North Atlantic. But that was what the expression was. Well, and uh, and so then the this but the question was, can you put two thousand rich people in the middle of the Atlantic and serve them the best food they've ever had? And have a boat that's really fast, you know, like that, that makes that, that makes that journey. It's, it's hilarious to think now that, that the difference of a few hours in crossing the Atlantic would have been a, would have. Well, think about it today. It's like, it's it's like taking the nonstop flight, right? Right. You'll be like, oh, hey, this one gets into Southampton at 6 a.m. The other one gets in at 7 p.m. that night. I'm going to take the the faster, take the fast one. It so you've got to solve more. the engine problem and the beef Wellington problem. That's you've right. Got two avenues of technological <laughs> innovation. 
so uh, the you know the British and the French were great at uh, at creating boats like this, and um, and the Cunard line, as you said, was sort of the the preeminent um, purveyor purveyor the preeminent purveyor of of this onboard experience. Uh, so in in um, in 1905, the RMS Carmenia was launched. Carmenia. Carmenia. We were out of Lusitania and Car- we were out of actual Roman provinces. Carmenia seems like a sounds like a fake. Actually, it sounds like a website where you see your blue book value. <laughs> to go to the Carmenia.com. What is Carmenia? Are you, you should do a what is Carmenia? Carmenia, Carpathia, Car- Yeah, you need to Carigenia. You need to Cartagena. You need to distinguish all these. Carmenia actually is um it is a reference to an ancient uh Archimanid. How, how is that? How is that pronounced? Archimanid. Achaemenid. I've never had to say it. Oh, it's uh, it doesn't a- have an Achim- R. Achaemenid. Achaemenid. It's like it's it, that's vaguely what Persian or something. Yeah, it's it. You 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 read about it in the Bible because the Seleucid uh, Empire is there and they were fighting the they were fighting the Hebrews. This is all part of the the Achaemenid. This is I'm back sorry, when the, back when there were wars in Iran. Something yeah, the that, something we don't have to worry about. Let's in our call day. it that Achaemenid uh, Empire. Okay. Was I mean it effectively was uh, as it had an extent almost as great as Alexander's. It went you know it was all of um, all of Asia and uh, Turkey and it went up into it went to through Bulgaria and as far as oh you're talking about the whole Achaemenid the whole Achaemenid that's not Carmenia didn't stretch on two continents no Carmenia is a tiny little. Little corner of the Achaemenid a little per- empire, a little Persian corner of it. Yeah, it's I it's see. um, it's sort of. Uh, well, I think it would be the area immediately opposite of the per- this. It's in the Persian Gulf, the Straits of Hormuz. Yeah, it's it's, it's directly opposite the um, the uh, airport there. <laughs> <laughs> the airport. What is that on the other side? Oman. Uh, no, Oman is down below. This is the uh, it's it's part of the UAE, right? United Arab Emirates. Oh, it's right. across from the Emirates. That's what, what I'm I was saying. That's say. what I'm saying. Yep. Yeah, and it's 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 close to Oman. There's a little there's a little exclave of there's a little bit of Oman for some reason that's an island in the middle of the UAE. There, I don't know why. Everybody gets a little island, and we'll see that that actually plays into this story later too. Interesting. But the Carmania, you're right. I mean, they were they had run out of good names, and uh, were. Were launching ships with, I mean, any, basically any place you could put an Ania at the end of it. Was the Carmania fancy? Was it a good one? Uh, the Carmania was extremely fancy. It had a it had a sister ship by the name of the Coronia, and let's leave Coronia, the Car- Carmania, Carpathia. Yeah, the Coronia was a, was an early uh, an early Toyota, <laughs> and uh, also the sister ship of the Carmania. And they were both um, they were uh, very forward looking ships, and actually the two ships were. Interestingly, were built identical to one another, except with different systems of propulsion. So one of them had um, the Coronia had a, the older style of um, of propulsion system, what was called the quadruple expansion coal burning engine, mm-hmm. and the Carmania had a new sort of turbine it had dilithium crystals. It had dilithium crystals. The Coronia actually was the first ship in it that, um, that sent out an ice warning the night that the Titanic sank. Oh, wow. so, you know, these ships were all plying the world's oceans sort of contemporaneous with one another. 
but the and so the 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 Carmonia and the jeez, why do I say Carmonia? The Carmania and the Coronia were built in order to test out the two propulsion systems. Oh, interesting. Like because there was still a lot of that's like how Boeing did that with the seven three seven. They had two different steering systems, and they wanted to know which one would crash. The turbines of the Carmania still they that was such a novel technology that there was still a lot of doubt about whether or not it was a valid system. And so they were like, "Let's build a ship." So you with get all one those early adopter, uh, you know, Prius people, Tesla people, you know, who are willing to risk the new thing. Right. They're the equivalents of you know the people who would do space tourism in a heartbeat today. And it's interesting to think that at the time they were willing to. Uh, uh, build a ship and then replace its propulsion system. If they figured out later on, like, oh, well, you know, this is a better engine. We'll just, we'll just, I mean, that would, must be a major undertaking. You can do it with a car. You just have a cruise ship on your front lawn for a long time with the hood up. <laughs> uh, so the, the Carmania was, you know, a very luxury, luxurious liner. It was, um, it was doing this New York to Liverpool run uh, that was that was uh, sort of maybe the um, well one of the the crown jewel sort of routes. A lot of people in Liverpool is pre Beatles Liverpool, right? But it was it was a ma- that was a major port, one of the bigger ports in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and and, it, and the Carmania had like a pretty a pretty good run, a pretty good life as a cruise ship from 1905 to the beginning of World War One. Um, on uh, on the German side, this was also an era where the Germans were uh, part of the conditions that led up to World War One was that Germany was trying to assert itself as a world power, as a global industrial power, and they they were late to a lot of the games that other European nations played. Games, colonialism, yeah, um, maybe cruise ship building. Is, yeah. is that what you're going to say? Worlds without frontiers, war without tears. Um, games without frontiers. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a Peter Gabriel. Uh, <laughs> is this a Tourette's. Is this some Will Wheaton tabletop game? I don't know about Worlds Without Tears. Uh, but you know, Germany suffered. I uh, I think uh, in the early 20th century from a, an inferiority complex. They were late to the colonial game. They were late to really nation statedom, and uh, there was a lot of. Uh, a lot of internal desire to prove themselves on the world stage. And so every one of these um, arenas, uh, they were, they were, they felt a lot of pressure and they were really trying to push the ball forward to, to arrive in, um, in the kind of like the stateroom of, of the, the major powers. You've got these efficient Prussians who think, it should be their birthright. Right. They're better than the they're better than the Belgians. They're better than the English. Yeah, how how dare the Portuguese have colonies all around the world? But they're being held back by these good timey Bavarians slamming their beer steins together. That's right. Those lazy, lazy <laughs> people from the Black Forest. Those no good Saxony Saxons. They um you know, and they, eventually, of course, the problem was they decided to colonize Central Europe. But at the time, they were they, – Because they'd missed Africa. <laughs> they had. <laughs> well, what do we still got? <laughs> Poland, I guess. Uh, they were they were starting to crank out um, this kind of, I guess you would say, consumer good, which was the uh, the the, lug, the luxury line. The ultimate big consumer good, then. Yeah, right. Uh, and it wasn't the iPhone. They were way ahead of the rest of the world in terms of um, 
airship dirigible technology. They were so far ahead, they were the only ones. <laughs> Uh, but in in 1914, and this is uh, this is maybe a, a bad time to launch a cruise ship. <laughs> in, well, in hindsight, John. In, in hindsight, in the spring of 1914, uh, the the Germans launched the SMS Cap Trafalgar, and it's named after Trafalgar, where the British defeated Napoleon. Which remind me, peninsula in Spain? It's in it's on the southern coast of Spain, the sort of Algarve coast of Spain. So now, outside of Gibraltar on the ocean side. Now I can see why a British person would name something after Trafalgar. It's one of their great landmarks. Right. But if you why, think- Why are the Germans naming something after a Spanish port where the British won a historic victory? Because the Germans really didn't like Napoleon. And uh, this is still in a period when, I mean, there wouldn't have been, uh, there wouldn't have been direct memory of Napoleon, but what happened in the 19th century that created what became sort of modern Germany it was all uh, a, a domino effect from those Napoleonic invasions. So they're like right? your mom. They're just yeah. making decisions based they're on like, Napoleon's spite. Apart. Obsolete Napoleon spite. Ken, you know that uh, uh, that most deodorants contain aluminum? Yes, I've seen that. Uh, the, uh, the way that they work is they actually plug your sweat glands to keep you from sweating. So if you've ever had part of your body where you thought, I just need to put more of a strange metal on my cells here. Yeah, con- right. Conventional deodorant is, is for you. But, but John, what if I'm a person who wants a more natural solution? What if I want some kind of deodorant that doesn't have any aluminum or parabens or talc? Is there one that's vegan? Is there one that's not tested on animals? I want to feel good about myself when I'm putting stuff under my arm. You're saying you don't want your body to be a love canal of heavy metals, you would like a natural alternative. Well, let me tell you, Ken, there is an option for you. It's called native deodorant. Oh, we're doing native advertising. We are. This is, it's completely, completely <laughs> native to our show. And the product is native. Capital N native. That's right. It's made without aluminum, without parabens or talc. I don't know what any of those things are, and I'm so happy I don't need to now. You don't want to know, uh, because what, I mean, talc, think about the talc wars uh, that on the off-worlds. That's not a thing you want to get involved in. <laughs> the less I know about talc, the better. But, the, uh, but native products are also vegan, not tested on animals, meeting your stringent criteria. They're made with ingredients you've heard of. Like, for instance, have you heard of coconut oil? I have. Have you heard of shea butter? Yes, I put it on my uh, uh, ashy elbows and knees. There you go. Well, this this is a product made of material you already employ. So Native has sent us some uh, samples of their product. And uh, what what do you remember what scent you chose? I do. It was eucalyptus and mint. Uh, a delightful combination. You're going to smell flames. like a, a koala bear with an Altoid in its mouth. <laughs> Even more than I already do. What flavors did you choose? I chose, uh, so I guess uh, they were really pushing the bergamot and pine, but yep. I, I didn't want to look up bergamot. Right. That's a little bit uh, musky. I, well, I got citrus and herbal musk. Yeah. Do I want that? I think you do. It I smelled. Do. It smelled great. Lavender and rose, uh, cucumber and mint. I didn't even see coconut and vanilla on the list. Maybe that's a women's scent. Uh, coconut and vanilla. I want to smell like coconut actually, and vanilla. It's, it's, a, it's a, a flavor of milkshake. <laughs> 
Anyway, do not put milkshake under your arms. There are, there's a wide variety of options for people of all genders, even teenagers of uh, any gender. And there are unscented options and a baking soda-free formula for those with baking soda sensitivities. What an inclusive deodorant we have discovered. Also, uh, people that don't want to support the baking soda uh, mines (laughs) on the off planet. They have stinky fridges, but great smelling underarms. Uh, There's free shipping on every order. And Native offers a three-day, I'm sorry, a 30-day free return policy and exchanges in the USA. John and I are happy users of native deodorants, and uh, we are uh, like the 9,000 people who have written five-star reviews on uh, Native's online reviews uh, aggregation site. (laughs) And if you also would like to try Native, and keep in mind, 30 days of free returns, we can offer you 20% off your first purchase if you go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code OMNIBUS during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com. Promo code OMNIBUS for 20% off your first purchase. The Trafalgar was a, uh, like a, a, a real next gen kind of ocean liner, a, a really kitted out, um, 1600 passengers, which at the time was a really, really big boat. That seems huge. Um, and it was, you know, it was the, the height of sort of German luxury, and it was making. <laughs> oh, now wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> the height of German yeah, luxury. I mean, it was the AMG. You don't the... have to scoop your own coal in your in your cabin. <laughs> no, I'm sure it was very nice. It was very nice. I bet they had little thin slices of cucumbers on the ladies' eyes in the spa and the salon. They did. They were there were deck top swimming pools, which weren't true of all of all oh, these yeah. kinds of ships. I bet know? that's a real structural yeah. issue that we don't even think about S- today. A uh, big sort of atrium across the top. But it was making the run to South America, which, again, the Germans trying sort of playing catch up. Um, They'd missed all the good trade routes. They had, and they had missed all of South America. But there were a lot. Does this explain why the Nazis ended up there? It does kind of. I mean, as as kids, there were were attempts to sort of retro-colonize places like Uruguay and Paraguay. There's still a big German, uh, ethnically German... Minority population in Buenos Aires and Uruguay and maybe even further north, maybe uh, like Colombia as well, I think. Well, we'll talk about that in a future omnibus when we talk about Nietzsche's sister. Uh, that's on my list to uh, to oh, Nietzsche's sister is on my list too, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But but there was a big um, a big tourist trade between Germany and Montevideo and Buenos Aires. This was um, and Brazil, like. Like cruise ships would make these stops, uh, the Germans are just looking for a little piece of their own, you know. They just want some. They just want some nice warm beaches. Yeah, they're not. You know, they're not dumb like everybody says. They're smart, and they they just want they they just want something of their own. They want to lie out on Ipanema Beach Mm -hmm. and turn red, and then have a beer. So the Trafalgar was was you know it it uh, it set sail in April. It made this transit down to. down to Buenos Aires, and unfortunately was caught down there at the beginning of World War One. And World War One, of course, nobody could have foreseen it. But when it when it happened, uh, when when the war was declared, all these countries had shipping and things in far far flung places in the world, and then, then they found themselves at war. What was what was going on in South America then? Like what what, what was Argentina's part, for example? Were they uh, allied with 
the the allied powers they must have been right because of the uh american cultural hegemony i don't like saying that word out loud hegemony hegemony no argentina was neutral in world war one and i think um i think you know, World War One didn't extend to South America in the same way that World War Two did. It was much easier for those countries to provide uh, neutral ports mm. um, and kind of, you know, both sides it. Yeah, they can make material for everybody, right? Right, and that and that plays in here. Um, there are a lot of rules of war that uh, have to do with neutral ports, and if you are if you're Warship goes into a neutral port to resupply. This sounds like the rules to a board game. You should not. It is. It effectively is. Uh, you're. You are. You're in an. You're in a little bubble in this neutral port where you. Your enemy can't come in and attack because it would be effectively attacking a neutral territory. Your enemies at the other end of the ally doing doing middle fingers with both hands, and you're like, "Hey, buddy, and we, and I'm we, in my cruise bubble." We see this a lot. In the history, twentieth century history of war, and and in particular here uh, at the mouth of the River Plata, there and the River Plata forms the border between Uruguay and and Argentina. Yeah, you'll go Uruguay and they'll go theirs. And we, mm, God, you thought you'd just slip that in there. That's, I, a, that's another. That's a cruise level joke. I would have got away with it if it weren't for those meddling me's. Yeah, the river. The Rio de la Plata, the River Plate, as they say in the UK, for some reason. Yeah, the River Plate. Although it or Plata means silver in Spanish, yeah. so why it's not called the River Silver if the Brits are going to change it? The River Plate sounds dumb. Um, but the but this little this little river is it's a big river. Uh, yeah, this big river, a huge estuary there, right? It uh it it ends up playing this function in both World War One and World War Two, or it ends up it ends up being a place where German ships find themselves trapped by the British who are waiting out in the ocean. This happens at the beginning of World War II as well. It does. I've seen a movie. It does. The Graf Speed yeah. uh, was like the pride of the German Navy, and it just happened to get sort of bottled up in the inlet there, or the, the mouth of the river at, at Montevideo. And because of bad intelligence— the captain of the Graf Spee imagined that there was this enormous British fleet waiting to sink him, and so he scuttled his ship. Wah, wah. The first naval battle of World War One also happens here. Really? Um, of all places? Of all off, places. Off the coast of Uruguay. War is declared in August of 1914, and, uh, and at that time, the Trafalgar is down in South America. It's um, It's... It's there. It's loading up or something. It's right. It's it's fueling up. It gets out of there, but on the 26th of August, so only just two weeks later, uh, the first battle of World War I, first naval battle between the HMS High Flyer and the SS Kaiser Wilhelm de Grosse. Now, which one was the German ship? Uh, <laughs> let's see. I like High Flyer. That's a that's that's a pretty cool name for a ship. Yeah, it's super. It's super bad. It's a it's a British. Uh... Ship of some kind? It's a... Um, I guess when I said U.S. cultural hegemony, obviously the U.S. was going to be neutral for years and years of this, right? Right. And and had not achieved cultural hegemony yeah. uh, in, uh, in... Well, we got the Monroe Doctrine, but it's just on paper. What's it actually doing for us? Right. Uh, right. And the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, you can it, you, it can only be a doctrine as far as you can enforce it. <laughs> 
But the uh, but the HMS High Flyer sank the Kaiser Wilhelm de Grossa, um, and you know that was the beginning of um, that was the beginning of the big the four years of naval battle. Four, right? four years of naval battle, but it, it certainly made uh, a strong impression on the Trafalgar, uh, who was. Uh, sort of, it was going to go home the same way. Oh, I was going to, I was going to go via Morocco, and now it's. And so, what happened was the Trafalgar was requisitioned. It was turned into a ship of war, and unlike a lot of cruise ships that get turned into troop ships, the Trafalgar was actually turned into a warship. Uh, her oh, it's not just transporting stuff; it's got weaponry. Yeah, her fancy china all went into a cabinet, and they. They, uh, the Germans boarded the ship and mounted big cannons on it and said, all right, you're a, you're a battle cruiser now. Did they get to use the pool? Uh, wow. You know, it, in all the records that I, I read, it's not clear what happened to the pool. I bet you they just drained it. Do you think the lifeguard's still there? No running. <laughs> Somebody's shooting at them. We got incoming. No running. There was a, uh, there's a very cool little archipelago of islands. And by cool, I mean, it's probably, uh. Well, by cool, I mean uninhabitable. Um, <laughs> I guess that's what a lot of people mean by cool. <laughs> called Trindade and Martin Vaz. And it's, uh, these are islands that are out off the coast of Brazil, somewhere between Ascension Island and mm. St. Helena. You know, So much closer to the South American side and the African side, but still pretty far out there. Way, way out. And, um, and, dur- and they were discovered by, uh, by da Gama. Back in 1502. The Portuguese again. Uh, uh, completely uninhabited. Claimed by da Gama for of, Portugal. A bunch of puffins, probably. Right. No, in fact, originally they were covered with forest. They were these beautiful forested islands out in the middle of the Atlantic. And then, of course... Uh, the, Portugal. The, the, no, the first British guy that arrived Uh-oh. set loose a bunch of pigs and rats and cut down all the trees. Because that's the first thing you do when you when you civilize a place. The trees are the view. Hasn't he seen the, yeah. the Seattle bumper sticker? And now they're just you know there's they're just it's windswept puffins. rocks. Yeah. Uh, but for for centuries they were these little islands that seemed like they had a good purpose, right? It seems like wow, there's an island here. This is this is better than just endless sea. Seems strategic somehow, right? And so. There, there was always always someone landing on them and trying to claim them, but unable to stay for more than an afternoon before they needed to keep going because there was no food or water there. In fact, uh, in the very late 19th century, uh, this the the uh, the site of Trindade was another example of a uh, of a guy trying to make a little kingdom for himself. An American by the name of James Harden Hickey landed on Trindade and uh, declared it a sovereign nation. Did he, he give himself – all these Americans give themselves royal powers. Did he give himself a title? Uh, Americans crave he did. crowns he, and royalty. He was the Prince of Trinidad. Ah, uh, and he, he, he said Prince of Trinidad, although this island is called Trindade. Um, and he set up a he he opened a diplomatic mission in the United uh, in New York. It's a clever little branding thing to try to get himself confused with a much bigger, more prosperous. That's island. right. Yeah. That's right. And with better steel drum music. But this island was also sort of requisitioned by the Germans as a place for resupply, a place that they would station a couple of of ships that had guns and fuel and ammo to um, 
you know, to make just a little, a little base to resupply their ships in, in, in the in South Atlantic. And that's where the Trafalgar went to be outfitted as a warship. And she went out and did a cruise, an uneventful cruise where she didn't encounter anybody to fight, which I think happens more often than not. But, um, but then on her second, uh, her second trip out, uh, on the 13th of September in 1914, which is my birthday. I was born in 1914 on the 13th of September. Happy, uh, 105th birthday. Thank you. Um, she, and, uh, she was there in the Harbor and she had disguised herself as the RMS Carmania, um, as a way, as a ploy. She had disguised herself as the British, as, as another British liner. Yeah. She, well, as a British liner, she was a German liner. Sorry. As a, yeah, sorry. As another liner come a British one. And w- how, what do you do to disguise yourself? You, uh. You just paint a new name on it. That's what they do in movies, right? Yeah, they kind of, uh, you know, they raise up the Union Jack or, yeah. I mean, there are certain things you can do. I think that the Trafalgar, when it was originally built, had three smokestacks, but Ooh. one of them was fake. So they took down the and fake And they took funnel. down the fake smokestack. Um, took, yeah. down, took down the big water slide. Yeah, that's right. Emptied the pool. <laughs> Uh, I think the the idea being that she would be steaming out and and at a distance would look like the Carmania and other British shipping would would sort of uh, either lower their guard or or try to try to uh, have some kind of reunion out in the sea and then she would suddenly raise up her her, her German uh, colors her skull and crossbones and go to war but uh, to her great Misfortune, the actual RMS Carmania had also been outfitted with guns and turned into not a troop ship, but a warship and was plying these same waters looking for enemy shipping. Well, that's awkward. Because if any boat's not going to fall for that, it would be the actual The actual Carmania Carmania is not going to say, is that the Carmania? Wait a minute. No, we're the Carmania. Is that a mirror? It's like a Marx Brothers routine. And and they, they also didn't think it was the Coronia. (laughs) <laughs> who was uh, who was elsewhere engaged? Uh, so the Carmania spots the Trafalgar, and the Trafalgar spots the Carmania, and they decide that they're going to uh, that they're going to engage in a naval battle. Now, where is this? Is this near the Martin Vaz and Trindade, or are, they, is, are they just in the middle of the ocean? No, somewhere? the Trafalgar is actually there in. I mean, there's not a port, but it's there in harbor at uh, Trindade. And the Carmonia actually spots its smoke first. The Carmania. You, oh, I'm sorry, the Carmania, not the Carmonia not, not or the Coronia. Goodbye, Rosie, Queen of Coronia. But the Car and you know the Car and Carmonia is actually another uh, nation state where just a crazy person has decided that somewhere in the middle of the nation of Portugal there's a town called Carmonia. There must be a website that just generates these for people. <laughs> and he's got his flag has a golden retriever on it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy, the I, king of Carmona. I would go there. It seems friendly. I'm surprised more nations don't have um, nice, friendly dog breeds yeah, they, on the flag. Like, why do you always have, like, a, a eagle or something sure, mean? dragon. Right. Put a dog on there. Put a corgi, for crying out loud. Well, the Carmania sees the smoke of the Trafalgar, and this is... Uh, the guns that were fitted to the decks are... Uh, were sort of larger long range guns. They didn't just sort of put machine guns up there. They put cannons on both of these boats. Uh, and so their initial engagement, both captains realized that 
that they needed to be, they needed to have a sea battle. They, it, it, this wasn't just a thing where one well, of them, like on a personal level, they needed that. They, this is the, the this is the law of the sea. That's what right? we do. And so they both steamed out to sea to uh, to engage one another in the spirit of gentlemanly combat. And their their initial uh, their initial conflict started. I mean, they were they were a couple of miles apart and started lobbing cannon fire at one another. I'm guessing the accuracy is not that great. The accuracy was surprisingly good. Oh, they're hitting each other from miles out? They are hitting each other. Ooh. And uh, neither ship is particularly armored. Well, yeah. You, when you refit an ocean liner, you can add guns, but you can't armor the whole Yeah, hull, they, maybe right? they draped some blankets over the side. Uh, but but uh, they're taking, they're both taking fire. And as they, uh, I think the, the Trafalgar's guns maybe were a little bit more accurate, the Carmonia um, realized that she wanted to fight a little bit closer. They started to edge toward each other, uh, scoring hit after hit on one another. You suck my battleship. And neither one of these ships has any none of the uh, none of the retrofitting included any of the other components of a modern warship. There were no elevators to bring the shells up. There was no sort of system. And so it ends up. They're that, running up a big central staircase. Yeah, they're with red with red satin carpeting. Like guys running shells. up holding shells and and um, and basically f- like fighting a war like you would if you had cannonballs. Oh um, yeah, you know, just like load the gun as fast. There's no auto loading. There's no. There's no magazine. It's just a. They're just these these guns are just sort of. And they like, are just shooting cannon at each other broadsides, right? Cannon. Shot at broadside. That's right. I mean, like, I wonder if everyone was like, "Yeah, this is <laughs> this is the stuff." It's like getting to drive an antique car. It feels or something. like, in a way, maybe the last battle of this of this kind. The two ships closed upon one another until they were uh, within a hundred or so feet, Ooh. where the crews on both ships were just standing on deck, shooting machine guns at one another, <laughs> and still firing these cannons. Um, what were the casualties like? Well, so both ships were uh, both ships caught on fire, and uh, the Carmonia received the the worst damage up front. Her entire bridge was blown off. Um, it seemed like both uh, ships were in danger of burning, uh, just like completely burning up. They'd each managed shots that uh, that were below the waterline, so both ships were taking on water. Um, I think that the, what a metaphor for war, you know, oh man, makes, just, makes, you, makes you think, doesn't you, it? You just said it. The, uh, the Carmonia was hit 79 times, but a lot of those shells are producing sort of grape shot or shrapnel. Uh, the 79 hits produced 304 holes and holes <laughs> is a naval term. It's doesn't just, mean holes. It's not just, it does, but it's not <laughs> oh. just like. I've got a hole in my pocket. It's like a, you know, it represents like, ah, that last shot produced X number of holes. 304 holes in the Carmonia. Um, the, the Trafalgar, I feel like you didn't have to explain that. I understood. Yeah. Okay. I understood what it means if you put 304 <laughs> holes in a ship. Maybe I'm no, maybe I'm no sailor, but. The Trafalgar was only hit um, uh, like a, the, the kind of embarrassing 73 times. What are we blaming here? Bad British uh, seamanship? Well, no, or, because uh, those 73 shots produced 380 holes Oh, in the Trafalgar. 
In the course of the battle, it seemed like the Carmonia was the one that was... Uh, the Carmenia. I'm sorry. The Carmonia being a nation in, in <laughs> Portugal. The Carmenia had received the worst of it and was, uh, was the one at, most at risk. But then all of a sudden, in a turnabout, the Trafalgar heels over, keels over, as they say, and, uh, and sinks. And, you know, her crew takes to the seas. There are varying reports of how many casualties, but 280 sailors were saved. The captain went down with the ship. Were there, were there hundreds of, hundreds of people killed or was no, that most of the uh, compliment? 50, 50 sailors, maybe at this the, didn't at have the its top. usual 1600 uh, no, the, people aboard. There weren't any, no one in a tuxedo ended up in the water. <laughs> the, there wasn't a string quartet playing. It, it had a it had a minimum complement of crew, mm-hmm. but fifty men died, and uh, the Trafalgar went to the bottom. The Carmania was also at risk of sinking. Completely, the bridge was was gone. The ship was on fire. It was also listing. If I'm the captain of the Carmania, you know what I do? I disguise myself as the Trafalgar now. Oh, Keep them guessing. What? Double double switcheroo. You, you disguise yourself as the surgeon of the Trafalgar. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> Master Commander, baby. At that moment, uh, because both ships were sending out distress signals during the battle, so every British and German and every other ship within 100 miles is listening to the battle and steaming toward Trindade, like looking to engage. Because this is like the first week of the war and none yeah. of these navies have met yet, right? right. This, this could be the biggest naval battle in history. That's right. And, and, uh, and because... The, you know, because the battle between the High Flyer and the, the Kaiser Wilhelm de Grosse oh, right. produced uh, that result at the mouth of the River Plot, there's all, or the Plata, let's call it, uh, there's a, you know, there's, there are scores to be settled already. Like all of this is, this is happening, this is very early in the war and it's all happening off the coast of South America. Um, there was a German warship that arrived on the scene to find the crippled Carmania listing, smoking, and on the verge of sinking. It was the, uh, the SS Crown Prince Wilhelm. And the captain had the, I mean, it would have been nothing to then sink the Carmania. But he was so freaked out by listening to all the radio traffic and felt like the greater risk was he was going to get boxed in by... British a, a newly arriving British fleet. Yeah, British fleet was, you know, was just over the horizon. And so looking at the Carmania and determining that it had no chance of surviving, he left it. Uh, oh man, that's a bummer if you're a German sailor in the water watching your uh So the the German sailors were picked up by other because there were so many ships in the in the area. Mm-hmm. They were the survivors were all picked up, but yeah, right. What a bummer when you're like, we got shoot him, shoot yeah. him, come on, ah, he's, he's leaving. He's kind of he must be a Bavarian. And you know the rules of the rules of battle would would allow you to paint a silhouette of the Carmania on your smokestack if you had if you just delivered the coup de gras. Wait, is that true? Sure, you would paint the the boat on your on your smokestack. Well, I think I don't right? know. I mean, I've, just I've, like, seen, I've seen uh, flying aces do it. Yeah, well, and I think submarines do it too. Yeah, you, you, I think you would be entitled to to paint a little silhouette of painting a cruise ship <laughs> every on ship your you sink. Uh, but but the Carmania actually limped away, and um, and survived. Uh, she ended up meeting up with some uh, with 
part of the British fleet. They towed her to safety. She was fixed, repaired in Gibraltar, and continued to act as a patrol ship throughout World War One. She w- she ended up in Gallipoli. Uh, she did become a troop ship, and then after the war, returned to passenger liner status. Really? Did she still have holes in her? I mean, can you imagine the? I mean, she had. We've already noted three hundred and four separate holes. That had to be patched. There must have been... Maybe some of the cabins have much more uh, much more light now <laughs> than they used As to. As you're out playing shuffleboard, there had to have been like a purser that took you around and said like, here, you can see one of the holes that we... that we, we, we Tourists uh, love to see uh, masonry that still has bullets in it. That's the one thing I know. So it, it must have been a hit. It's absolutely true. When we go on the Joko cruise this time, I really... I think we should walk around the, the, uh, the Rotterdam and see if we can find any any uh, damage from like the poop cruise. If there isn't any, let's, we're going to put some holes in there. Like I'm going to bring a, dr- a black and Decker drill. We just cordless use, drill. We just use the stickers that those guys with the, with the, with the Camaros put in their <laughs> trunks. And that concludes Trafalgar versus Carmenia. Entry 1325.IS2314 Certificate number 32056 in the omnibus. If we ever said Carmonia at one point instead of Carmania and did not correct ourselves, please send us immediate corrections. It was very difficult for me not to say Carmonia. I don't know why. I preferred it to Carmania, which is just as inelegant. Uh, we want you to correct us. We want yeah. to know all the mistakes we made. You That's can true. you can notify us uh, on social media where I am at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick. The show is jointly at Omnibus Project. Um or if you have somehow in your era have access to uh, electronic mail, you can reach us at the omnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us handwritten nasty uh, corrections to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, you were saying, uh, I think, in the last entry, John, that you liked when people sent you money. I do. Uh, this person sent us 200s and a 50. Unfortunately, they are Dominican Republic pesos. Oh, wait a minute. From the Banco Central de la República Dominicana. Well, let's see. That was that's, it's so nice to hear you speak Spanish. I feel like I'm in the fish called Wanda. <laughs> I will give you the $5 I won in the last entry if you can name the three men on the 100 peso bill of the D- Dominican Republic. You have three seconds. Who, me? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's incorrect. Juan Pablo Duarte, Francisco del Rosario Sanchez, and Matias Ramon Maya. You are on no bills of the Dominican Republic. Well, uh, the Domini- the current exchange rate is that one Dominican peso equals, uh, what, not not 19 cents, but 0.19 cents? So five pesos to the cent. So 250 pesos is 50 cents? I guess so. Here you go. Here, here keep the change. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, 5,000 pesos is $96. So that's not going to buy you much in port. Because we are going to be in the Dominican Republic in, yeah. our, in our era shortly. 250 Dominican pesos. It's sort of like a, it's pocket change. Is the cost of living low enough there that we can? That su- there's something that costs 50 cents that we can buy with that money? Well, that would be interesting to find out. You know, I'm not sure that I have uh, I've been to the Dominican Republic. 
I am sure that I have not. Oh wait, no, no, this is saying 250 Dominican pesos is actually four dollars and seventy-three cents. Oh. So so it was nineteen wait, cents. Give me back that no, money. No, I threw no, no, you, you gave it to me. Yeah, when you gave me bad information almost, about currency trading. It's trading. almost five dollars they sent us. I trusted you. Too bad for you, sucker. Oh, man. Sucker. We also got sent. Oh, that we should we should save this for the addenda episode about the Christmas pickle. We got sent. Speaking of Spanish, a delightful, uh, defecatory Spanish Christmas tradition that I'm sure will be appearing on a future addendum. Did you say it was the defecatory? Is it, that? Did they send you some toilet paper? Uh, they sent us. Well, I, I don't Christmas, want. I don't want Christmas to give it poop? away. It, yes, it is a poop-themed Christmas decoration. Oh, All right. Well, we'll characteristic it. of the Catalan region. Uh, pay, uh, subscribers to our Patreon who have generously donated to support the show will get to hear us talk about Ken's Dominican Christmas poop. It's uh, it's from Spain. Actually, it's oh, not Dominican. I'm sorry. Spanish Christmas poop. Uh, yes, and uh, you can if Caca. you if you enjoy the omnibus. And uh, you have currency in your area. If you live in some kind of post-scarcity utopia, and as a result you have disposable income, uh, you can support the program at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. You can collaborate with fellow listeners on the Futurelings Facebook page or the Futurelings subreddit. Uh, or is there anything else I usually say that I don't say? I did email. Uh, I did yeah. mail. You did mail. You did the subreddit. Uh, no, I guess you you covered it all, Ken. I'm going to open one more uh, card because the sticker is sliced bread, the subject of a recent omnibus entry. It's sealed with a sticker of sliced bread, and it's a, a happy Thanksgiving card. Oh, I That's didn't know nice. that was a thing. No, it looks I'm, like it's got quite a bit of writing on have it. Have you ever sent someone a happy Thanksgiving card? No. Uh, Megan says she wanted to send us something, but she doesn't have anything that sounded good enough. But a Thanksgiving card mailed too late to arrive by Thanksgiving uh, apparently made her threshold of, mm-hmm. that sounds of good enough. mail worthiness. And she wishes us a wonderful holiday and looking forward to all future slash past episodes. There's Thank something you, written on the back of the card I can see from here. If you get near Fisherman's Terminal, check out this lovely shop. Oh, it's a Seattle. It's from a Seattle uh, boutique. Do we have a thing called Fisherman's Terminal? Oh, she's yeah, talking about in Ballard. Well, no, across the across the. Ship Canal from Ballard. Right. And whatever that is, Interbay turning into Magnolia. Yeah, I call that Ballard. Do you ever hang out there with the fishermen? I do. I've, I've been, you know, there's a couple of good little restaurants there in that part where the, the fish is real fresh. The fish from the fish and chips is very fresh there. Uh, Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Ken and I are going on a cruise very shortly, and it the cruise ship may be requisitioned into war. We might get sent to the Straits of Hormuz. And we, Ken, Ken and I will each get one of those crazy anti-aircraft helmets that you see in old British movies and man a gun together. We will be next releasing the show from the actual historical Carmania in southern Iran. <laughs> Do you think, uh, it, between the two of us, if one were the gunner and one were the loader, who would be a better gunner? Who would be a better loader? That's a good question. I mean, the loader probably has to carry heavy stuff, and you look like you have maybe have more upper body strength. This is what I was afraid of that I that you with your good eyesight and your uh, and your more your sort of lithe body, my relative clean to living, mine, yeah. That you you'll end up in the chair aiming the gun, and I'm just going to be schlepping shells. You don't want to be my R two unit. I guess I I guess that's what I'll end up doing. R two, we got a fire back there, and you'll be like, <laughs> and you'll re- re- some. Hitherto unsuspected part of your body will pop out and take care of the problem. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate your support. Well, we hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear does not come. Um, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be or have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Almond.